Welcome to episode four of the Not Your Babushka's Russian Speaking Jew podcast. I'm Margarita Karol, working on RSJ community projects at JDC and Twine. Last episode, we introduced the concept of Arevut, or mutual responsibility, the value that motivates people to act in support of one another. And we heard how elderly are supported in this time of pandemic around the world. What's interesting about this kind of support is that before you can activate your mutual responsibility with others, you have to be in relationship with them first. With a focus on Arevut at the level of community, we ask RSJs who live outside of the typical American RSJ narrative we often hear about in New York. What does mutual responsibility look like in your community? And what is unique about the way Jews are in relationship with each other in three very distinct places, Louisville, Calgary, and Chicago. And a little bit of Israel and the Soviet pipeline stops sprinkled in. Before we dive in, I'll offer some context for our new listeners. JDC and Twine works to support a generation of young Jews who lead and live a life of action with global Jewish responsibility at its core. We offer transformative experiences that allow you to access global Jewish communities and stories and to serve those in need. And Twine is an initiative of JDC, the leading Jewish humanitarian organization in the world that lots of our families in old country knew as the Joint. We partner with and are supported by Genesis Philanthropy Group to produce experiences specifically for Russian-speaking Jews, like a trip to Odessa and Kharkiv in Ukraine that I took a cohort of 20 other American RSJs and Insider Connections Global Virtual Service, where we connect North American young professionals with global JDC clients for weekly one-on-one conversations to combat the effects of isolation. In 2011, I published a poem with an accompanying poster series that is now an illustrated book form, celebrating my mom's immigration to America as a political refugee. It's called Spoils of War, and it starts, Thank you isn't enough to say to a woman who risked her life for you, but it's a start. After releasing that project, I noticed our relationship became richer, with every interaction having this context of gratitude for what she did for me and her future children. And perhaps a fitting continuation of that celebration is the privilege of interviewing her here on a podcast for JDC. I asked my mom about the months-long experience of immigrating alone with me from September through November of 1988 through the Soviet pipeline that her parents and sister had traversed a year before. I couldn't picture how a 24-year-old girl with a two-year-old could manage this on her own. And what I found was that my mom wasn't alone. She was surrounded by community all along. Do you remember Vienna? Very well. What do you remember? Well, listen, I wasn't scared. I was, you know, I was motivated. I needed to bring you in, in one piece. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Do you remember going to the JDC office? Yeah, of course. They met us in airport, and people who were going to Israel were put on one plane, and we went on a um, by car. They took us to hotel. Why did you have to go to Vienna? Because you ca- you couldn't get uh, through immigration. Russia didn't have any you know diplomatic ties with America. 
so we were like living Russia and Israeli visa. We were like living to Israel, and then we was we were petitioning to come to America in Vienna, and then we were going through all the immigration process, medical tests, and everything in Italy. Mm-hmm. Wow, you had to petition twice. Yep, you petition to leave Russia first, like you live into Israel. Uh, to uh, live, uh, to go, to live with your relatives. Right. Then when you go, so you fly to Vienna from Moscow. Then in Vienna, uh, JDC was meeting us. And you knew them as JDC. Some, no, I knew them as uh, what joint. how they were like the joint. Joint, yeah. So and then we were like going to. They placed us in like a hotel. We were cooking food, but they were providing us with, uh, you know, we, we were getting uh, like checks, you know, paid like to whatever it was like. Not a lot, but it was enough, you know. We had to go along, you and me. It was some process. I don't remember exactly what was, but it was all the... So when you're going to say, America going to say, okay, they you can proceed to next state, stage. Then they move you to Rome, and you there you go through like all medical stuff. And all, there are a lot of people were waiting for like not only... America, but it was like Canada and Australia, we all were together. Mm-hmm. So, and then, yeah, and then we lived there. We were, uh, they were taking, we were going by train to Italy, Europe, in a stroller. And why still, were people helping you do this? Why people would help us do it? Yeah. Jew, you mean American Jews? Mm hmm. Because we're all Jewish. American Jews was uh, accepting uh, immigrants, all communities in uh, Chicago. We're grateful to everybody. Hayes helped us greatly. Jewish Family Services, too. They supported us for like six months. Uh, They were giving us monetary uh, support and medical support and helped us find jobs and schools and, you know, introduce us to American families, Jewish families. It was great. Susan Seufer was our um, Jewish family services. I remember her name. See, it's been more than 30 years. Yeah, why do you think you remember her name? She helped us. I remember I needed, like, every paper I needed. I couldn't bring my documents. So every document that they had, including, like, our birth certificates, everything was in a just notarized copies from Ukraine in Russian language, not even translated. So she gave me this notary letter that since I'm, uh, I came as a refugee. The only paperwork I could bring that, and so I, I was able to process it with my nursing school and everywhere. As our family transitioned to America, first in our refugee immigration and later getting situated in Chicago, 
we were not alone in this seemingly impossible feat. Coming to a city with a growing population of Russian-speaking Jewish immigrant families, systems were being formed to support one another over time. And in addition to that was the community offered by local American Jewish families. We were hugged by the aid of our English-speaking neighbors in ways that cushioned the blows of refugee immigration from the Soviet state with such care, anticipating needs across experiences, subsidized Jewish childcare, elderly housing, English classes, and other support systems that were rapidly built to meet the needs of a growing population of Eastern European immigrants settling in the metropolitan area. Growing up in the U.S. and families that left the Soviet Union, there's the experience of growing up surrounded by other Russian-speaking Jewish kids and families and businesses and even neighborhoods as you'd experience if you grew up in Brooklyn or Chicago. And then there's the experience of growing up in Louisville as a Russian-speaking Jewish kid surrounded by Louisville. This was the experience of Sasha, whose family landed in Louisville after immigrating from Donetsk in Ukraine. Louisville is, I mean, it's largely suburban. Um, it's like, you know, a lot of these, it's a, it's a largely suburban, like a mishmash of Southern and Midwestern culture. It's sort of like right at the, the Mason-Dixon line where the, the South meets, um, meets the Midwest, meets the rest of the country. It's like, a, you know, every other, the story of every other community. I mean, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was this opening to come to uh, the U.S., um, in Canada at that time, also not just not just go to Israel, and my family decided to go to the U.S. and we were sponsored by the um, the, the Jewish American community in Louisville. So I don't think my parents actually had uh, much of a say as to where what city they landed in. I don't think that they had ever heard of, of Louisville, Kentucky, um, before that. <laughs> I'm not sure. Like a, but the Derby or Bourbon was um, very well known in Donetsk. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they came there and like life happened and they found jobs and built a life there and um, found their, you know, groups of friends from all the other former Soviet states um, that all spoke a common language. So we had this mishmash little community there. How did they like living there, your parents? Um I think at the beginning it was hard, but I think that's, you know, I think the immigrant experience is hard. Uh, it was a very different culture for them to come into. And it wasn't such a large Russian-speaking community that you could be totally enveloped in it like, like you had in um, some bigger cities. So I think that it was tough for making that transition um, to, to life in Louisville, Kentucky. There's like an article that was written about my family um, in the community. I think it was called the community newspaper that the Federation put out because we were one of the first families to come to Louisville. Um, And so they, you know, everybody, the the Jewish community was like so excited in the, in like 1990 that there was a a Jewish family from the former Soviet Union um, coming and um, wanted to like embrace this family. And there's like, a picture of like me as a three-year-old with like a big curly baby Jewish baby fro um, <laughs> um, but I mean there was a lot so I, I distinctly remember um, like you know a, a, 
don't think it was a social worker, but it was like a like a, a representative of the Jewish family and and previously called Jewish Family and Vocational Services, then called Jewish Family and Career Services, meeting us at the airport, taking us to an apartment, um, uh, an apartment that you know had been set up with for us with furniture that had been donated and um, toys. I had my own room and it was filled with toys and um, sort of giving us the, uh, the keys to the castle. And you mentioned that RSJ community was small when you were growing up in Louisville. I was in the public school system, and so I had my like uh, my like American friends, and then I had my Russian speaking friends, and those were were two different groups. And uh, New Year's was always New Year's Eve was always spent with the the, the Russian speaking community, and like all the the parents getting together at a restaurant, and and all the kids hanging out, and. Uh, my American friends were doing something boring. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I had, I had those two different groups and um, probably like two different identities somewhat that I was like moving between. And what are some other ways you remember Jews in Louisville were showing responsibility for the well-being of RSJ refugees arriving in the community? The center of, uh, of Russian-speaking Jewish life in Louisville, Kentucky, is a place called Shalom Towers, um, which coincidentally, there's a Shalom Tower in Tel Aviv, which when I first found out, I was like, this is clearly a copy of the one in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> that was so prominent in my life. I'm pretty certain the one in Tel Aviv probably came first. Uh, so Shalom Tower is a um, a, like, 15-story building where all of our grandparents came to live. And it's specifically um, housing intended for Jews over the age of 65, um, unassisted living. And so our grandparents all came to live there, mixed in with um, elderly uh, American Jews, and like the common language was Yiddish that you heard in the hallways all the time. And it was also like the after school program because everybody came to their, like, their grandparents after school. And it was like the summer camp because everybody went and was with their babushka and dedushka uh, for the summer. And it was right next door to the JCC. And it was right next door to, um, to Ilyahu Academy, which was the now no longer existent, but but at the time, the, the Hebrew day school, the Jewish day school for the community. So it really was like this central point for, uh, for Jewish life. And uh, every Russian speaking Jew in Louisville, Kentucky knows Shalom Towers and had like pivotal uh, moments of their upbringing <laughs> in that place. And what was like a day in the life of an RSJ kid in Louisville when you were growing up? A typical day was like going to your grandparents' house and like, you know, babushka giving you bouillon with like something else to eat. And then you meet up with your friends and play like billiards in the billiards room or you know, like we were always like causing some kind of like trouble in the um, in like the first floor of the building or like going outside and going to the 
you know, playground that was attached to the JCC or, or sneaking into the pool. <laughs> Our past experiences and the stories we tell about them shape how we show up in the world. My Spoils of War project was dedicated to my younger siblings. I wanted them to understand that the stability they knew in their Midwest American lives was built on a foundation of victory, escape from an oppressive system by way of community rallying around them and fighting alongside them across the globe and bolstering them with the support systems that they needed as they arrived in their new lives. Knowing this cultivates gratitude for what our families and our communities can achieve at their best. Sasha's family's immigration experience to Louisville was commemorated annually and influenced her professional trajectory as she gravitated towards social impact work. I think this, the, the sentiment that was very much there is this idea of how fortunate we are to be in the U.S. and, and the like patriotism of, of um, this, you know, like celebrating each year, the day that we arrived in the U.S. Yes. You know, March, March 8th, which is also Women's Day. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's like, it's like a holiday in every family. That's, you celebrate the day that you came to the U.S. It's a, it's a really unique thing. Do you remember what you would toast to? I, I mean, I think it's just, it was always about, you know, how, how lucky we are to be here and the, the opportunity and like, you know, the, being reunited as family and um, being able um, to also um, like express our Jewish identity and not have to hide that. So how did this upbringing in Louisville manifest in your trajectory in social impact and eventually ending up in Tel Aviv? When I was an undergrad, um, I went to Vanderbilt University um, for undergrad and studied an interdisciplinary degree there called Medicine, Health and Society. I think I knew that I was always really interested in these issues, maybe, you know, growing up as kind of like a observer, sometimes I felt like of a, of a very different culture um, when I was at school and outside of the uh, Russian speaking home. Um, and maybe that stuck with me and like these issues of health and, and chronic disease, which are very prevalent in Kentucky, uh, were somewhere in the back of my mind when I was uh, interested in studying these things and came back to that um, came back to that in Louisville after finishing my degree and worked for the YMCA on a grant that was actually a part of the stimulus package in 2009 um, and worked on helping corner stores in um, food deserts in Louisville get set up to sell fr fresh fruits and vegetables. And I really, really loved the work. I was with the YMCA for uh, five years and, you know, decided that that was enough. And I had sort of gotten as far as I could. I, I eventually became the director of the department there that was um, creating all sorts of really amazing programs for um, dealing with community health issues and decided that I was going to go to grad school uh, um, and do this public policy degree, got into um, the Kennedy School at Harvard, and then had this summer uh, between leaving my job at the YMCA and starting my degree at the Kennedy School, uh, where I was offered the opportunity to come and work in Israel for the summer. And I hadn't been in Israel since I did Taglit, I guess it was almost like 10 years ago um, at that point, and thought, sure, that'll be fun. Um, a good, good little 
bridge to, uh, <laughs> to starting grad school, came to Israel. Uh, in the first week that I was here, I met the man that is now my husband. So that is uh, why I'm back here now, why I eventually made Aliyah and moved to Israel after finishing my, my degree in the States. It's not surprising that Sasha felt this strong pull towards designing social impact interventions for communities she lives in. After being met in America by a community that showed up for her and her family and celebrating those milestones annually, how could she not show up for Louisville? The two programs, the, the public-private partnership that, that allowed um, Jews to immigrate from the former Soviet Union and receive the support of the Jewish community, um, and Cuban Americans, they're, they're really interesting case studies for how a, an established community in the U.S. can support uh, an immigrant community entering. And I, I, I know a number of people looked at it for um, refugees fleeing the war in Syria and like other other geopolitical disasters where, where there are refugee crises and whether established American communities um, American Dash, whatever that identity is, mm-hmm. um, can work hand in hand with the government. A lot of Russian speaking Jews didn't end up integrating that well into the um, sort of American Jewish communal life. Um, but but still, there was. Um, there's a, a warmth and an appreciation there for everything. And I think that it really helped a lot of Russian-speaking Jews maintain their um, sense of, of identity and internal community as, uh, as Jewish, to have had that support. Maybe that's why I got my master's in public policy now that I'm digging deep. Sasha now lives in Tel Aviv with her husband, Guy, daughter Neve, and dog Shalansky, who is named after a renowned Ukrainian poet, playwright, and translator from Russian to Hebrew, who also made Aliyah. I can't help but visualize the Shalom Towers from Sasha's stories the same way as I see Cabrini Greenberg, a nickname lovingly given to a high-rise on the north side of Chicago that also offered subsidized housing to Jews, including many families Russian-speaking Jewish babushki and dyadushki including Nadinka, the grandma of my best friend Julie, who would visit her during the summer months from Calgary, where she was growing up. When I think about the Yiddish word for family, mishpucha, Julie's family was definitely part of mine. In Kharkiv, our grandmothers were best friends from school age and experienced becoming mothers alongside each other. Then their daughters grew up together and joined the legacy of becoming mothers together, Julie and I being born months apart. And after our immigration to Chicago, we sponsored Nadinka to join us there, as Julie's relatives in Calgary could only sponsor a limited number to join them there. And although those summers at Cabrini-Greenberg felt like my most communal Russian-speaking Jewish moments growing up, there was no denying that Julie's life as a Russian-speaking Jewish kid outside of those summer months in Calgary, home of Stampede, was different from mine in Chicago. To get at that, I asked Julie a question I like to ask when speaking with Russian-speaking Jewish young professionals engaging with Entwine's work. What are your top five identities? My top five identities? Um, I, I would say Canadian 
Russian Jew. Mm-hmm. Mostly mm-hmm. just because the Russian Jew rolls off the tongue yeah, better yeah, than yeah. Jew Russian. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And oh, what are two other identities? Mm-hmm. Like, what if I only have the three? I don't want to like bleed this though. Yeah. But tell you know, me what so other that, people say. that feels right. Some people bring their profession into the mix at some point mm. or their interests. Like I something put like- immigrant first I think in my identity Um, interesting yeah that's a good that's a good identifier actually I would I would add that to my identifiers as well how did you end up in Calgary um oh yeah so my dad um had an aunt and uncle who had come here in the late 70s so we were sponsored and I've heard you describe yourself as the token Russian Jew in your friend groups you didn't really grow up surrounded by kids your age who spoke Russian when I was living in Berlin, I met like quite a few uh, Russian Jews who were also there, but like for a short time, like I was like, they were just there for like a year or two or to go to university or whatever. And um, one girl, like I was so excited because I was like, Oh, I can like speak Russian to her. It's going to be great. And we spoke Russian a few times. And then she told me that I sounded like an old Russian grandma because, like, that's all <laughs> the only people I talk to here. Oh, like, my God. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> My exactly. parents and my grandma. Did you feel like there was a sense of Russian Jewish community? I wouldn't say I would definitely not have called it a community. Like, there were Russian Jews kind of scattered around right. the place. Like, I mean, so we came in the late 80s, early 90s. And at that time, I think a lot of people were feeling nervous about identifying themselves as Russian or Jewish. Um, And so like we knew, so for example, there was like this older couple that owned um, like a shoe repair shop near our house. And my mom was always like, they're Russian Jews for sure. But they would always tell people they were Greek, you know, because they just didn't want that title. Like, they were just, like, really nervous about it. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, And so, like, I think... Survival mode. Yeah, I think a lot of people just kind of, like, hid who they were and Mm -hmm. and were not really... Like, you know, like, sometimes, uh, like, you'll get these, like, mass immigrations to a place and then people have the tendency to, like, stick together. And for whatever reason, that just didn't seem to happen in Calgary until much later. So I have half-sisters who are much younger than I am. Um, and Jane, she's, she's turning 22, um, like in her generation, Wow. um, her, she's like 22. there's, I know she's 22. It's crazy, <laughs> but yeah. So she's 12 years younger than I am. And she mm-hmm. has a ton of Russian Jew friends in Calgary. Mm. Like there's a whole bunch How of them. How did she make them? Well, like there was just kind of like an influx that came kind of later in the nineties yes. and they were a bit different. Like they... They weren't like poor immigrants. Julie is a communications professional with the city of Calgary and just welcomed her son Bo to the world, the inaugural member of our family's next RSJ generation. In addition to the shared immigration experience out of the Soviet Union, the places we immigrated to and the communities that surrounded us there became just as strongly a part of our identities in the ways we uplifted each other and how our American Jewish neighbors As my mom said, because we're part of the same global Jewish community. In the next two episodes, we'll take a different lens to our RSJ stories, now focusing on Asiyah, or the activation of these values of mutual responsibility. 
Learn more about our work at jdcentwine.org slash notyourbabushka. Until next time, JDC Entwine is wishing you and your family and friends safety and connectedness.